Would you like to turn to John chapter 1? John 1, if you have a Bible. Father, this really is uh, the story of all stories, and uh, we're so glad to be able to spend more than just one brief session on it, but to have it the opportunity week after week just to rehearse the glorious story of the coming of Jesus into our world. And we bless you, Father, for the good things that you have given to us through Christ, but most of all for the reconciliation that we have now with you, that you have brought us to yourself in Christ. Father, speak to us through your word, we pray, and draw us ever closer to you, that we may live this life in all its fullness that Jesus came to bring us. May your Holy Spirit show us the way, for Jesus' sake. Amen. A friend of ours who's now with the Lord in glory wrote, he used to write doggerel. This is one of his better um, poems. He wrote this. Is this what Christmas really means? The fighting in the queues to buy expensive presents or to stock up with the booze? Down to the finest detail, our Christmas must be planned for getting poor and lonely folk living near at hand. Presents must be posted off, the turkey bought and cooked we must be so organized with nothing overlooked. All our thoughts and efforts are geared towards that day, forgetting poor and lonely folk half a world away. Is Christmas really just about this mad commercial world? What happened to the innocence we knew as boy or girl? It is a common fallacy that no money means no joy, forgetting Christmas started with a naked baby boy. Are we too late to recapture the innocence that's flown? How can we ever find again the joy that we have known? Let's gaze afresh at Bethlehem on that scene forever new, remembering God's word to us. Here is my gift to you. Well, it's an epic journey, isn't it? An epic journey. In the beginning, writes John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. An epic journey. There's been some epic journeys, hasn't there, in the history of the world? Do you remember Columbus from your history lessons at school? In 1492, he sailed the ocean blue looking for a way to the east, but going west, there's a logic there somehow. A real adventurer. But you may not know that for 35 days in September and October, they didn't sail in sight of land of any kind. It must have been terrifying, mustn't it? to be completely out of sight of land for 35 days. In fact, so afraid was his crew that they were on the verge of mutiny. And he said, well, if we don't sight land in two days, we'll turn back. And they sighted land the very next day. I bet he was glad. 300 years later, a man called Captain Bly, you remember him too, of the Bounty fame. He was set adrift by his crew in an open 23-foot lifeboat with no charts or instruments, yet he successfully navigated 3,600 miles to the island of Timor in Java. Extraordinary, isn't it? What a distance in 1789. In 1947, a guy called Tor Heyerdahl, do you remember him of the Contiki? Well, he covered 4,300 miles in the Pacific Ocean in a balsa raft. 101 days it took him to travel from South America to Tuamoto Islands. Do you know where the Tuamoto Islands are? I don't know where they are. They're in the Pacific somewhere. But they are 4,300 miles from where he started in a balsa wood raft. Unbelievable, isn't it? Tim Severin, in 1976, set out from Ireland, and this is not an Irish joke, in a small leather cura with a couple of other people, to replicate the 6th century journey of St. Brendan, who navigated from, Northern, from Ireland to North America in the 6th century. Columbus didn't find America. An Irishman did. And it isn't a joke. And he succeeded. This guy, in 1976, followed that journey. In 1969, some folks set off from America in the Apollo 11 on an eight-day mission that took them half a million miles to the moon and back. Epic journeys. But the most epic journey of all, of course, was the one that brought Jesus from glory to Bethlehem. Not in distance, because heaven isn't remote from us, but it's an extraordinary journey, moving from the one place to the other. It's encaptured here, isn't it? Verse 1. The word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And these two statements describe a journey of truly epic proportions. Some of the journeys I've just mentioned to you were taken out of sheer necessity. Captain Blythe had no choice. It was sail or die. So he was energized by self-preservation. Some journeys were taken out of simple exploration. Columbus wanted to know whether there was another route to the east or not. Some just out of a desire to see if it was possible. Both Severin and Heyerdahl did that to see if ancient people had actually done what was reported of them. 
some out of scientific inquiry. So the Apollo 11 crowd come back with bits of rock because they wanted to find out what the moon was made of and was it were camembert or cheddar or rock. But God's motivation in coming all the way from heaven to Bethlehem was a simple one. He came because of love and for no other reason. This same writer will write in one of his letters, God is love. He will say in this particular gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That lies behind the incarnation of Jesus. So the journey that brings Jesus all the way from heaven's glory to earth was motivated purely and simply by love. And as we celebrate Christmas, as you celebrate Christmas with your family and your friends, and you invite all the neighbours in and do whatever you do, and have a, a time of quiet as well, I guess, to get over it all. But remember this, Christmas, it is simply because God loves us. It's simply because God loves Don't you love the John Lewis advert? of the little boy who can't wait for the time to pass by and you go right through the advert thinking he just wants to unwrap presents when in fact he is so keen to give a present. I think that's very clever, John Lewis. It'll make people want to buy their gifts, which is obviously the point of it, but actually they've captured something which is that giving is more joy-filled than receiving. And this is because it mimics God. God could not wait for Christmas to come. There's only been one Christmas. All the rest are anniversaries, by the way. You knew that, didn't you? They're all anniversaries. And when the time was fully come, Paul says, God sent his son. And God must have been so excited. Well, you get that, don't you? When he tells the shepherds. He just can't keep it in. One angel is not enough to tell the shepherds, we have to have a whole legion of angels. And the skies erupt. Because God, and then it all goes dark again. But for just that split second, for those few moments, God says, this is how much I've longed for this time. Because Christmas is all about the love of God. We're told in this passage from John that the, the word was with God and the word was God and gives us the hint at the very beginning that God is a relationship. He is a community, Father, Son and Spirit. That word Trinity and the implications of the Trinity won't be worked out for hundreds of years past John's life. It will be long into the third century before the theologians will get together and try and work out what the Trinity is all about. But here it is here. And we have a contented Trinity. They don't need anything. The Father doesn't need anything. The Son doesn't need anything. The Spirit doesn't need anything. But they create because of love. You and I were made to be loved. Isn't that a delicious thought? Isn't that wonderful? And I tell you what, my friends, that's why it hurts so much when we're not. That's when rejection really bites hard. That's when people are, uh, suffer the implications of breakdown of relationships. It is so hard because we were made to be loved. He made us to love us. He's under no compulsion to make us. He has no need to make us. But he creates the heaven and earth in order that we might have somewhere to live and enjoy God. And he came and joined us on that earth. We were made to know the love of God. And it was planned from the beginning that this rescue plan was not plan B. Jesus didn't come as a kind of, oh, well, we better do something to sort out the mess that we've got ourselves into kind of way. Plan A from the beginning. Peter says this, he 
Christ was chosen from before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Knowing everything that will happen, God still wanted to go through with it. And he planned that Jesus should come. And when in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That isn't hyperbole. God isn't exaggerating. He really did mean it. He has loved us from the beginning. Love is one of the key words in John's gospel here. Count up the number of times he uses the word love. It goes on and on because love is God's motivating force. And it's because of love that Jesus came. And because nothing can frustrate the purposes of God, not the sin of mankind, not the activity of the devil, the time did come when God would send the Son. And we read here in verse 3, the light shines in the darkness because of the sin of mankind. The world's gone dark. The light has gone out. But the, light cannot, the darkness cannot overcome the light. If we were in the middle of the darkness now and all the shutters closed and so forth, these very small, single candles would actually give us quite a lot of light. The darkness does not overcome the light, rather the reverse. A people walk in darkness, says Isaiah that John read, have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness as light has dawned. And Isaiah sees far into the future, 800 years or so, into the future he sees the light coming. And this is what John's giving us here. Christmas is all about God coming because he loves us. And he announces his purpose. The Old Testament is constantly telling us that God has plans. God will do something. And if you can imagine yourself way back in the Old Testament, you must have wondered, when? When is this going to happen? When will it ever happen? But of course, we live in this point of history, and we know it happened. And this is so encouraging, because Advent is a time, it's the beginning of the Christian year, a time when we not only think of the coming of Jesus, but the return of Jesus. God fulfilled his promises the first time. He'll do it another time too. And this is our hope, my friends. This is our hope. That the God who promised his son for that first time has said he'll come back. We will see him again. Time will be no more. So God announces his plans. He does it then and he does it now. And he does it through a man called John. John the Baptist's ministry is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist comes over as a quite austere guy wearing basically a hair shirt and eating foul locusts and things, which we find is a pretty unpleasant sort of experience, I guess. He's not the sort of chap you'd let loose with the children next door. I just realised there's three Charles's here, actually. Not two, is there? There's one next door as well. Goodness me, there's a whole plague of Charles's here, isn't there? I've never had so, so many Charles in one room at the same time. Anyway, you wouldn't let John the Baptist loose next door, would you? Because you kind of feel he would terrify the children. But his message, and so therefore people have understood his message as being a kind of hard one. And we're glad when Jesus comes along because he smiles a lot more than John the Baptist. But did you know, the reason John came baptizing, it says here, was that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. You see, it will say in one of the Gospels, everyone who responded to John's message realized who Jesus was. But those who neglected John's message failed to see who Jesus was. Jesus will say later on, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No wonder John called people to repentance because he wanted them to see God. His message, quite the opposite of being a, a, a negative one, is a very positive one. 
Do this and you will see him. Be prepared for the one who's coming. Because John's mission is actually not full of condemnation, it's full of love. He really does want people to be prepared for the Lord. Christmas is all because God loves us. Well, Jesus comes and gets a mixed reception, doesn't he? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Sin makes us blind, and sin makes us hard. And the very people who should have recognized who Jesus was did not. And we have the ghastly conversation at the end of this gospel where to Pilate's, shall I crucify your king? These people will say, we have no king but Caesar. I just feel a cold shiver ran down God's back at that moment. Didn't you? We have no king. How can the people of God say they have no king but Caesar? And the rejection is complete. Many of the people to whom Jesus came did not receive him. But it wasn't all bad news. It says here, but to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, it's the same idea, receiving, believing, it means the same thing. He gave the right to become the children of God. And that's why Jesus came, to bring us back into the family. Don't you just pray that families this Christmas will be reconciled with one another and not separated apart. People all tell us horror stories about the family getting together and it ends up in disasters because grandpa wants this and the children want that. and It's all horrible. Wouldn't it be wonderful this Christmas when families got together, they experienced reconciliation? Wouldn't it be wonderful when families rejoin when brothers who haven't had words to say to their brothers for years and years phone them up and say can I see you over Christmas because I, I just want to come to get to know you again it's not right we should be apart wouldn't it be wonderful because that's what the message of Christmas is all about God's sending his son that we can be reconciled to God God doesn't need to be reconciled to us we need to be reconciled to him so God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself to be born again, says Jesus to Nicodemus. A new beginning. Aren't there streets of people, crowds of people, towns full of people just wanting to have a new beginning? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Loads of people thinking, if only I could start all over again. Well, they can. Because that's what Christmas is all about. A new beginning. To bring us to the Father. Undo the works of darkness. Set us free to live life to the full, to know the one true God. And it's all because of love. And so far up to the point here in biblical history, there's been a temple or a tabernacle or something like that, which has been the meeting place between God and men. And in those lovely, wonderful words in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that's an interpretation by the translator. The word is actually tabernacled, so I understand, which wouldn't mean a lot to most people, but you get the point. If you know your Old Testament history, of course, immediately comes to mind the picture of the tabernacle and the temple where God met with man. And now you have the man who is one, he is God, and encapsulates the other, he is the archetypical Israelite, in himself being the meeting place between men and God. Isn't that wonderful? No wonder John uses such rich words that immediately take you back. This is where you meet with God. And so we'll watch as John chooses one or two 
situations just to show us who Jesus is and shows us that we can know God too. This is not the untouchable splendor of deity, but God here and now. This isn't the unknowable mystery of deity, but God here and now. This isn't the frightening power of deity. This is God here, now, with us. It's not about John. John says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not a prophet worthy of the name. I'm simply a voice in the desert crying out, make straight the way for the Lord. And so John came preaching the gospel, declaring what needs to be done. And Christmas, my friends, is the greatest journey that's ever happened in all of history, where God became flesh and dwelt among us. These other exploits done by brave men and women through the centuries who boldly went where no one's been before. Well, it all goes in the shade when you think of Jesus, doesn't it? Let me finish with a small story. Because for us who've heard this story so many times, we almost have to wind ourselves up to it. Maybe you don't. But it's interesting, I always think, to read stories about people who've never heard the story before. In 1994, two Americans answered an invitation from the Russian Department of Education to teach morals and ethics based on biblical principles in the public schools. They were invited to teach at prisons, businesses, the fire and police departments and a large orphanage about a hundred boys and girls who had been abandoned, abused and left in the care of a government-run program were in the orphanage. And this is how they tell the story. It was nearing the holiday season, 1994, time for our orphans to hear, for the first time, the traditional story of Christmas. We told them about Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem. Finding no room in the inn, the couple went to a stable where the baby Jesus was born and placed in a manger. Throughout the story, the children and orphanage staff sat in amazement as they listened. Some sat on the edges of their stools trying to grasp every word. Completing the story, we gave the children three small pieces of cardboard to make a crude manger. Each child was given a small paper square cut from yellow napkins I had brought with me. No coloured paper was available in the city. Following instructions, the children tore the paper and carefully laid strips in the manger for straw. <clears throat> small squares of flannel cut from a worn-out nightgown an American lady was throwing away as she left Russia, were used for the baby's blanket. A doll-like baby was cut from tan felt we had brought from the US. The orphans were busy assembling their manger as I walked among them to see if they needed any help. All went well until I got to one table where little Misha sat. He looked to be about six years old and had finished his project. As I looked at the little boy's manger, I was startled to see not one, but two babies in the manger. Quickly, I called for the translator to ask the lad why there were two babies in his manger. Crossing his arms in front of him and looking at this completed manger scene, the child began to repeat the story very seriously. <clears throat> for such a young boy who had only heard the Christmas story once, he related the happenings accurately 
until he came to the part where Mary put the baby Jesus in the manger. Then Misha started to ad lib. He made up his own ending to the story as he said, and when Maria laid the baby in the manger, Jesus looked at me and asked me if I had a place to stay. I told him I have no mama and I have no papa, so I don't have any place to stay. Then Jesus told me I could stay with him, but I told him I couldn't because I didn't have a gift to give him like everybody else did. But I wanted to stay with Jesus so much, so I thought about what I had that maybe I could use for a gift. I thought maybe if I kept him warm, that would be a good gift. So I asked Jesus, if I keep you warm, will that be a good enough gift? And Jesus told me, if you keep me warm, that will be the best gift anybody ever gave me. So I got into the manger, and then Jesus looked at me and told me I could stay with him forever. As little Misha finished his story, his eyes brimmed full of tears that splashed down his little cheeks. Putting his hand over his face, his head dropped to the table and his shoulders shook as he sobbed and sobbed. The little orphan had found someone who would never abandon nor abuse him, someone who would stay with him forever. I don't know whether Columbus thought his journey was worthwhile. I guess in the history of the world it was. I'm sure, certain that Captain Blythe was very relieved to have got to the end of his journey and made it back to safety. And Torhey Adul and Tim Severin, maybe they thought their journeys were worthwhile too, confirming history as it had been recorded. And I'm certain the guys on the Apollo 11 were aware of how important that is. But I know this for sure. The Bible says, when Jesus sees the travail of his soul, he is satisfied. I think the journey that brought Jesus from glory to Bethlehem was worth everything. <laughs>